Hello, welcome to the Catholic League podcast, the podcast for busy Catholics. My name is Father Rob Adams, and once again, I am joined by Father George Elliott. Father George, it is great to have you on again. Great to be here. Thanks for thanks for inviting me back. Yeah, it's it's way more fun to have somebody else to talk to. It's like playing jazz instead of like trying to be a concert pianist or something. Yeah, the whole idea for us to to do this, I loved it. Uh, like we would just talk on the phone every month or two. And I was always like, man, these are great conversations. We should just like record this. Yeah. So I feel like that's what we're doing now. <laughs> just us nerding out on theology. I, and, you know, I think I think that's something that unfortunately we've we've dropped the ball on as a church, right? Nerding out on theology has either meant like parsing everything, like splitting, splitting hairs about how many saints or how many angels can dance on the head of a needle or something like that. Or it kind of just goes down into like moralizing. I think there's a cool little middle zone where we're talking about how faith affects us and how we can understand our faith better. So I, I'm all about it. I'm all about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. I miss that as a priest too. And, you know, that's something that's so beautiful about the seminary life is there, there are other people who who love talking about those things and you have the freedom to do that. But man, you get thrown into a parish and it's just like, you're just in the grind, you know? So yeah, you're fun. like, I need you to do this thing. I need yeah. you to go to confession, get married in the church, have your kids baptized, do those things. Why? We'll get there. We'll get there. Exactly. <laughs> but anyway, uh, like I've said before, we're trying to trying to organize the podcast into different categories. And so this one is going to be about faith and worship, right? So we've talked about uh, doctrine. We talked about prayer. We've talked about my opinions on things. But I think today would be a good chance to talk about sacraments and worship and, and things like that. So as we're recording this, we are one day out of All Souls Day. And so that means most priests in the world have celebrated a lot of masses for the dead. Isn't that right, Father George? That's right. Got the got the triptych, the three the three masses yesterday. We we were just talking about this before we started recording. And uh some priests like to break it up throughout the day to try to get more people to come, or the the more traditional old school way is to do three masses back to back. And I think we both we did both of those, right? So, Father George, you did the three spread out, right? That's right. Yeah, three. We, I mean, we've got five churches here in Nacogdoches County, and then we got three priests that work in all of them. So, I mean, we're like running all over the place trying to cover masses everywhere. God bless you. God bless you. And see, I did, I did the three back to back because I live in a little mission territory, and it's not, not a ton of, uh, not a ton of people used to praying for the dead. So, I was surprised though. I had a really good turnout. I had about ten people at every mass, which. For my parish is pretty good for daily mass, but oh, that's awesome! Yeah, I yeah. remember doing it in, uh, when I was still studying um, in Rome, and it was—it's actually a really good experience to just offer the three masses, be praying for the dead back to back, and it's cool how you know the texts kind of line up and things of the sort. Did you did you ever feel like it? For me, it was usually like after the second mass, you're just kind of exhausted and and really hungry. <laughs> Uh, I have to say, I don't remember the hungry part. Um, I remember just like being in it, like you're just in the prayer zone. You know, it's almost like after by the end of a holy hour, as long as you're not totally distracted, like you're just kind of like in the zone, you know, you're yeah. in the prayer zone. Um, I wish I could do that. I was I was uh, I was saying my lector pieced out on me and the the readings are are they're a thing. So, you know, oh, so you're, you're, you're hungry and angry <laughs> and I didn't have a voice anymore, you know, insert all the things, but, uh, it did make me kind of think because I too am not without prayer and, and meditation. 
why do we do this? Like, why do we, why do we pray for the dead? And particularly, why do we offer mass for the dead? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, the, the really practical historical thing is just kind of like, well, because we always have Mm -hmm. the sacrifices were always offered. Um, even you can see that in, in the Maccabees, um, they have the sacrifices offered for the dead and then just kind of the early Christians picked it right up and started doing it. Right. That's, that's 100% true. But I want to challenge people on this because I think a lot of people don't know. I'm going to look up my Bible real quick. I want to read, uh, I think it's 2 Timothy. Let's see. I don't have the, I can't, I don't actually have it in front of me, but there's a, there's a line in 2 Timothy. I believe it's 2 Timothy 20 something, 26 through 28, just a, a guess. Paul's right. talking about, Paul talks about this guy named Onesiphorus, Onesiphorus, and he wishes blessings. Yeah, I know. Great name. Great name. But Paul wishes blessings on the household of Onesiphorus because Onesiphorus helped him when nobody else did. Mm. Now, this is a this, this is an interesting conundrum because as Paul goes on, he goes on for like two verses talking about this guy and his family. And then the way he ends it is, may the Lord look with mercy upon him on that day. So mm. two questions kind of come to my mind, right? So number one, why is Paul talking to this guy's household and not to the guy himself? Because we know like in other in other letters of Paul, he'll be like, hey, tell that guy I left my coat at his house. Right. Yeah. He's not afraid to just talk to individuals or call him out. Like right. he'll be yeah. like, you know who I'm talking about. Like it's <laughs> it's not it's not Paul's not Paul doesn't do this. Like, talk. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like tell the family of this person that I'm concerned about them. He'll just be like, hey, stop. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So Paul, first off, talking about the household of somebody makes you kind of think that there's a reason he can't talk to that person. Mm. Right. Yeah. The second thing I've thought of that's kind of just kind of made me start thinking is why does Paul pray that God will show him mercy on that day? Yeah. Like what day is it? Is it like a Tuesday? Is that what he's talking about? Right. Right. You know, he's talking about the end. He's talking about the end. That's not a that's not a prayer Paul makes for other people in in his letters, right? So Paul doesn't when Paul says he'll, like he's praying for someone, he'll be like, "May the Lord grant you relief," or "May the Lord grant you to know Him better," something like that. This is a pretty final type statement. Yeah. So some people there are there are some scholars. Now, granted, this is not this is not quite as as mainstream as it could be. But I think a lot of people do come to the conclusion that Onesiphorus is dead. I mean, it sounds reasonable to me. That he, he's dead. And Paul is kind of praying for him yeah. as a dead guy. Yeah, makes sense. So they're, they're, they're at least, I, I always want people to realize, like, there's there's traces of this stuff in the New Testament. That's why Paul talks about being baptized on behalf of the dead which is kind of a complicated thing we don't fully understand. Um, yeah. Probably was not like the Mormons do, where people are baptized vicariously for the for like non-Mormon people. Uh-huh. From, from what it looks like, it looks like in Paul's day, uh, it was for catechumens who were martyred before their baptism. Hmm. That it, it would have been people who were looking to join the church but got sick and died or 
died before they could be baptized or martyred or, or whatever. But there was this notion that shows up even in root form that we have a responsibility towards our deceased friends and families and church members. Yeah, no, that's good. I actually hadn't even um, pointed out or like recognized those two locations specifically and kind of seen those interpretations. That's good stuff. So why is it that that our prayers can can help them then? Yeah, this is this is the part that I think a lot of non-Catholics get hung up on. And maybe the nicest way I could I can kind of phrase it is like there's a couple options here, right? Either the person dies, right? Well, they die and and they're judged right away, right? They go to heaven or they go to hell. God judges them, the end. Or they die and then uh they kind of have a second chance. Mm. And I think this is this is how people feel about the Catholic teaching. They think that well, you die and maybe you probably should go to hell, but if enough people pray for you, God will change his mind. It's like a like make up points on a test or something. Like, you know, if you fail, but you turn in corrections within a week, then then you know you get half points back. And, and yeah, maybe, you get a B. Because yeah. that's that's how it works now. Exactly. You'd be surprised how true. <laughs> that's actually true. Um, but but I think I think that uh, a lot of people don't realize that the Catholic teaching on praying for the dead assumes that they are already judged. Mm. They're already judged. So that's why church, the church has always taught that we pray for the souls in purgatory who are already saved. Right, they're going to heaven. Yeah. So then the the obvious question is then like, well, then why are we praying for them? Right. That's what people ask. Right. And I I like um I want to say that it's John Chrysostom, but I could be wrong. I want to say it's Chrysostom, but I think Chrysostom says, imagine that you had a friend who went on a trip to a for- or moved to a foreign country. And that friend was in exile and they didn't have a house and they were just having a hard time. Let's say that you could send some money to a politician, maybe the king of that other country to help your buddy out. Would you do that if you thought it would make a difference? Yeah. And honestly, having lived um, preacher of the royal court, like just bribe someone. It's fine. It's a bribe. (laughs) Just send him a bribe. And it'll work out like in Italy, you know, if you want to build a building, just send your application and an envelope full of maybe cash to the local bureaucrat, right? It's just a gift. But there's, I I do think there's something kind of intuitive there, right? Like we, we realize in, in some way the person, they're not in heaven yet, but they, they sort of need help to get there. Uh, I, I actually, my favorite way to think about praying for the dead is is from uh, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Oh, I love that book. That's an outstanding one. I make everybody read it when they're going RCIA and they're mad about purgatory. <laughs> like, That's I cool. always, I'm like, read this book. Yeah. And they're like, that doesn't sound like medieval Catholic purgatory. And you're like, yeah, well, medieval Catholic purgatory is one particular emphasis. Yeah. But the, the, gist, the gist of the book is that, like, people have to learn how to walk in heaven. You know, everybody's in the same heaven. It's not like there's a separate place. But when you first get there, they say that the grass is too sharp because heaven is so real because God is existence itself. Right. God is love itself. And that it's it's so real that it hurts their feet to even walk on the grass. It's just like when you learn how to play guitar, you know, you got to get your fingers like all the calluses and and all that. Right. Yeah. And so like our prayers 
can help the person get closer to God, to get stronger, to, to move further in, you know, even mm-hmm. the, the Orthodox would talk about, I think some Orthodox theologians would say that even that there's not really a physical distinction between heaven, hell, and what Catholics would call purgatory, uh, that it's all, it's all one place and it's full of the fire of God's love. And for the people who are saved, that fire is warm. That fire is good. Fire is light. If you are not in favor of God's love, that fire hurts you and burns. Hmm. Right? That's awesome. Everybody gets to see God, but for some of us, it's miserable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, the solidification of the impurities of the the soul and the separation from God, or that, you know, the, the deciding against God um, that kind of happens at death. Then right. becomes really the the source of the pain. Exactly. Exactly. Now, granted, that's that's not exactly our model as Catholics, and we would have a few bugaboos with that. But the right. general, you know, it's an image, right? It's kind of like Trinitarian theology. Like every analogy is just uh, it's kind of good heretical. enough. Good enough <laughs> makes the point. Exactly. <laughs> but I kind of look at it like, okay, so imagine then that there's this this kind of group of people, sort of in the middle, right? They're not not bad enough to where the flames of God's love are absolute torture to them, but they're not quite godly enough to where those flames are a source of warmth and light and inspiration. Yeah. Or or perhaps even, you know, like those in purgatory are the ones who were not completely pure, but the, the direction of their life was still towards God. Yep. Right. And so, yeah, as they die, they, they, you know, they're free to continue to draw close to him, but like you said, the grass is, is spiky. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and our, our prayers, our prayers help make them closer to God, right? Through his grace, through his through his kindness. Actually, we won't have a ton of time, so I won't go too far down this rabbit hole. But you know, the idea of indulgences being offered for the dead, like masses and things like that. So the way the way the church used to always do this was there was a number. You know, those old books, it'd be like one Hail Mary is three years indulgence. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, which, okay, fine. There's a reason we don't do that anymore. But the gist of it that I still think was cool was that that number was actually supposed to be an equivalency of prayer and fasting. Oh, I had never heard that. Yeah. So when, when you say like, oh, a glory be is 300 days indulgence. The idea was saying a glory be was the same as fasting for 300 days. Dang, <clears throat> I'd be saying a lot of glory bees. Right. <laughs> Side note, if you ever want to follow this, I, I talk about this a lot, but uh, it's part of the development of confession that originally there was this, this moment where we went from public confession to the bishop once a year to a sort of middle time where we confessed to a priest privately, but the penance was huge and took forever. Yeah. And, and so in Ireland, about the seventh century, they came up with these books called Books of Equivalencies. And it was like, instead of fasting for 10 years, you could spend three days and three nights on the tomb of a saint, right? Mm-hmm. Or instead like, of- on the tomb, Would you just like sit on it? Like physically stand there for three days. Oh. They were, they didn't understand, you know, like the need for sleep and stuff. It wasn't high on their radar. All right. But were made made a little tougher than than today. Right. Could you imagine doing that as a penance? <laughs> oh, it, yeah, yeah, horrible, 
today you'd, they'd be like, you, you are the worst. But back then it would be like, oh man, that priest led me off. I didn't have to do like 20 years abstaining from my marriage and quitting my job. And I could, I could just do this. Right. And this is where, but this is where indulgences came from. Those equivalencies got more and more merciful with the idea that the church itself was sort of supplying the rest. So when we, mm. we pray for the dead, think of it like if you offer mass for the dead or you attend mass and, you know, even as a lay person and offer that for the dead, think of it like, oh, what if you fasted for 10 years for somebody? Don't you think that would matter? It'd matter quite a bit. Yeah. You know? And so like when we offer these things for the dead, we're offering our, our, our prayer and our fasting and the church is making most of the down payment for us, which is really cool. That is cool. Like, a, like parents, right? Like a, a wealthy, wealthy parent. Yeah. Like, like, like how our, our generation will never be able to afford a house. But, you know, if we had somebody who, who dropped like 80% of the down payment on it, it'd be like, well, now, now this is, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I just think, I think that that's one of the things that we've really missed out on as Catholics that, that our belief in mass and indulgences and prayer and fasting for the dead is way, way more than just the medieval controversy of like throwing coins, whatever the, the coin and the bell rings, a soul to heaven sings or, or something yes. like that, you know, <laughs> way, way cooler than that. That's awesome. Well, that's about all the time we have for today. I want to thank Father George for being on here with me today. It was super fun to nerd out about praying for the dead. Indeed. This has been the Catholic Link Podcast, the podcast for busy Catholics. My name is Father Rob Adams. And I want to encourage everybody to head on over to catholiclink.org, where you can find all of our previous podcasts, as well as a lot of other great material about developing your Catholic faith. In particular, I want to make a plug for our small group initiative that we're getting started. You can find all the information over there on the website at catholiclink.org. Until then, thanks so much for listening. Look forward to seeing you soon. Take care and God bless you.